it's really important that we expose our kids to different foods. But that exposure doesn't necessarily mean what goes in their mouth. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. So it is another rerun for you this week. Hopefully, by the time you are listening to this, I have turned in my book manuscript, and I am taking this week to chill out. It's the first week of July. We've got family visiting. My whole goal for this first week is to just like spend a ton of time in my pool and my garden and let my post-book brain like melt. There's a stage in book writing where you just feel like you have used all the words, there is nothing left, and you have nothing to say. But don't worry. It's temporary. It always comes back. And I will be back in your feeds next week with a brand new podcast episode. So make sure you're subscribed so that you get that in your podcast player. In the meantime, we are revisiting the Comfort Food Archives again. This is episode 53. It aired on December 5th, 2019. Our guest on this episode was Jennifer Berry, who is a feeding therapist and founder of Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics. I'm a huge fan of Jenny's. I first met her when I was reporting a story for the New York Times Magazine in 2014. I mean, we go way back. This was the piece I wrote about my own daughter's journey off a feeding tube, and I spent a lot of time reporting on the approach that Jenny and her colleagues take towards child-led weaning off feeding tubes and child-led feeding therapy in general, or responsive feeding therapy as it's known. And Jenny is just someone I turn to over and over again, both personally as we continue to have struggles with our daughter, but professionally as well. She is someone I consider just a really trusted source on all questions related to family feeding, all the dynamics, how to think about the different skills your kids have, the emotional development piece of it, and the nutrition piece of it. So this conversation is about why nutrition is actually much less important to successful family meals than we think. And I know that may feel sort of uncomfortable for a lot of us. I mean, we hear all the time that our big responsibility as parents is to feed our kids a healthy diet and more fruits and vegetables and less of other stuff and all of that. But that so often gets in the way of feeling good about how you're feeding your family. So we talk a lot about how to set aside your nutrition anxieties at the family dinner table and what that might look like and how that might improve some of the struggles you're having there. But Jenny and I also go really deep. You know, she is a trained therapist with a strong research background. I'm a health journalist. So we talk a lot about the sort of nitty-gritty way that nutrition science gets done and how flawed and misleading both the studies themselves can be and the media coverage of nutrition science. So we talk about how to really interpret what you're seeing in the media. And by media, I mean mainstream media outlets, and I also mean social media. When you see people throwing out statistics, throwing out these really broad claims about different foods, or really just like making claims about, quote, healthy eating in general. So I think this is another super useful episode. These are concepts I find myself referring back to often. So here is Amy and Jenny and myself, but first a quick break. Okay, time to read another of your podcast reviews. This one comes from at it's same underscore Mario handles are so often not meant to be read out loud. But anyway, thank you to this kind person. They write, a must listen for all parents and those providing care, physicians, nurses, mental health professionals, dietitians, physical therapists, etc., to moms and or children. Particularly helpful these days for parents who also have social media accounts and are navigating the barrage of often misleading and shaming parenting advice. The episodes with Sarah Louise Peterson are above and beyond. I couldn't recommend this podcast enough. 
Thank you so much for that kind review. Yes, we love Sarah. You can catch her on episodes 27, 30, and 41. She is our resident momfluencer expert who helps me dissect a lot of what we see on social media. So definitely check those out if you've missed them. And if you have thoughts to share about Burt Toast, please leave a rating and a review, and I will read some of the reviews here on the podcast. This is such a key way to support the show because podcast ratings and reviews really help us find new listeners. The other key way you can support the show is to become a subscriber to the Burnt Toast newsletter. Just click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You'll also get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, which includes reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column. And you'll become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. Go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Comfort Food. This is the podcast about the joys and meltdowns of feeding our families and feeding ourselves. This week we're talking about what to do when everything you know about nutrition is starting to make you a little crazy because sometimes what you know about nutrition seems to not be true depending on the day. So we're going to brainstorm some ways you can find a better balance for yourself and your family um, with a very special guest. I'm Virginia Soulsmith. I'm a writer, a contributing editor to Parents Magazine, and author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. I write about how women relate to food and nutrition and our bodies in a culture that gives us so many unrealistic expectations about all those things. And I'm Amy Palangian, a writer, recipe developer, and creator of Yummy Toddler Food. And I love helping parents to stop freaking out about what their kids will and won't eat and also about nutrition news. Because <laughs> lately it's been like every week there's been something in the news there's that is just... a lot. Yeah. Yes. It's, um, it's been kind of crazy. So this week we are so happy to have Jennifer Berry of Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics back on the podcast. Jenny, welcome. Thank you. Hi, how are you guys doing today? We are good. We are so excited to be talking to you. I'm glad so to be So you here. are a fan favorite on the podcast, and our listeners mostly will be familiar, but let's, for folks who are new to the podcast, let's remind them or tell them who you are and what you do. So I am an occupational therapist by trade and a feeding therapist by specialty. And I'm the owner, as you said, of Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics. And we work with um, families near our headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia, um, but also all over the United States and beyond, helping families help their children overcome feeding challenges. And we work with kids that are feeding tube dependent, helping them wean from their feeding tubes. We help kids that have severe feeding aversions, motor problems with eating, all the way through the kind of everyday common hurdles that families face at the table. And for listeners who want to know more about Jenny and her approach to food, check out episode 28 when she was on last. Um, and we talked about what to do when your kids just don't eat dinner. That was a perennial problem. Um, So today's episode came out of an email conversation that the three of us had after Jenny listened to episode 46, where we talked about the new nutrition guidelines from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation saying that kids should not drink chocolate milk or juice before age five. I stumbled over that because in my notes I wrote they should drink it. That was sadly not the recommendation. (laughs) Um, So we were then talking afterwards with Jenny about how hard it is to balance the knowledge, and I put that in quotes because as Amy said, the information can change so wildly, um, 
But, you know, we have all this information these days about nutrition and what we think our kids and and we ourselves need to be eating. Um, But what, how do you kind of incorporate that into just being present with your families at meals? And Jenny had this really beautiful analogy comparing it to yoga. So Jenny, tell us about that. Well, so it occurs to me often because I'm so immersed in this world, both as a mom who feeds kids and also as a feeding therapist who talks a lot um, and works a lot and looks at these studies that you're talking about that have so much different information, some of it good, some of it competing. Um, I, I just, it occurs to me that we get so caught up in that information. And so the yoga analogy was just that, like, you know, if you're using a yoga, if you're learning a yoga pose, for example, you have to first learn all the technical aspects, like the posture and the breath positioning, all of that is really important. You can't do without the technical knowledge. But then when, in order for it to be like truly yogic or in order for you to experience the poses it was meant to be, or this probably applies to sports and other performance um, in other areas of life, but in order to really experience the yoga pose for the way that it was designed to, you kind of have to take all of that technical knowledge and set it aside and be in the pose. And I tend to look at feeding kids in the same way, that we still can have all of this information on the macro level, like we, we in so many ways are really fortunate to have access to all of this information that kind of floods us every day in the media from about how, what foods we should feed our kids and why, and then not let it seep into everyday decisions because it takes us away from our kids. And I feel like it also leads to a really unhealthy kind of dynamic for us as parents and and for us between our kids that we can get really stuck and overly focused on doing things the right way. And so the the trick is to have the knowledge and then to um, and then to let it go and then be with your kids and try to make decisions. And I don't know that it's easy. I know I know it's not easy for me, <laughs> um, but I think it is possible to work towards that and have a little bit more freedom for you and your child. Is this something that you see um, your clients struggling with often? It's universal. Yeah. I yeah. think not only my clients, but my friends, I mean, my friends that are parents, I, I don't really know many parents that it, that don't struggle with it, honestly. Yeah. I th- was thinking as you were um, explaining that, that the other night we went out to dinner and it happened to be a restaurant that had calories listed on the menu, which is not something we don't, I guess we just don't go to, re- I don't know. It was like a thing. I was like, oh. It's everywhere oh. in New York, but I think it varies by state. Yeah, and it's doing, and it, it yeah. really threw me um, because I'm yeah. not used to having that information when making food choices. <laughs> and I was like, I feel like I'm a pretty informed person, and I feel like I usually can like push that stuff aside. But I was like really stuck because because <laughs> yeah. it's right there in front yeah. of you, and then it feels like, oh wait, is my every decision I make around the meal am I supposed to focus in on this one aspect? Right. But you know, of course not, especially when you're trying to like help your three year old decide what to have right. Right. And keep your sanity Not really appropriate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Keep the three-year-old yeah. from climbing underneath the table. Yeah. It was right. really the situation. Oh, yeah. That ship sailed at my house. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's a great example of like the burden that can come with um, information. And I, I do think it's really hard to negotiate. And that's a really concrete example. But there's lots of really subtle ways too. I think that we, you know, there's lots of reasons we want it, we want our kids to be 
healthy across the board, not just around food. And so we c- it carries a lot of weight with us. And I, I do think it's a real challenge. I think it can be done um, to kind of hit that just right balance between having the knowledge and using it at the right time to make decisions. Yeah. Um, Virginia, could we just pause for a minute um, so that you can tell us like some examples of where we might be getting this information just so that we can be a little bit more clear with our listeners about what we're talking about here? Yeah. So, you know, as someone who's been a health journalist for, oh, I don't know, 15 something years now, um, I kind of, you know, both experience this as a consumer of media, like we all are, but also this is what I do day to day is putting these messages out there um, for a long time. This is what I did. So what we're talking about is the nutritional information you get when the morning news is talking about the, you know, everything you know about red meat is wrong or the New York Times reports on it. And then it gets distilled further because you know, it comes not just from these news sources, but also from a meme on Instagram or Facebook or a thread on Twitter where everyone's weighing in. And a lot of them maybe are experts and maybe they aren't. And so we're getting our knowledge about nutrition from a lot of different sources these days. And the problem is these sources are definitely not all created equal. So, you know, just because somebody puts it on a pretty graphic on Instagram does not mean they bothered to look up the study that was done and actually evaluated the quality of the research to see whether it's a useful tidbit to share. And so this is not just to put Instagram on blast, although I do think it's a huge issue there and Pinterest and other places where this gets disseminated. Um, But I think it can be useful to know a little more about how to actually evaluate the information when you get it. And so some strategies that I use as a journalist that I think are not hard to learn, I think anyone can do this, are, you know, always when you're given a new piece of nutrition news, figure out the primary source for it. So don't just trust the Instagram meme, but also don't just trust the New York Times or any, you know, any media um, reiteration of it because that means a journalist you're you know it's like a game of telephone like that you're that much further away from the source and so what it's really useful to do is go look up the actual study they're reporting on and in newspaper articles you know especially if you're reading online they'll usually hyperlink to it or if you google the researcher's name and the study topic you'll find it pretty quickly you may only be able to read the abstract which is the research summary because often you have to pay to read full research papers Um, but even the abstract you can get a pretty good sense of what you know how robust it was this research and it's important to know, especially with nutrition research, it's very difficult to do high-quality nutrition research. It's very expensive and time-consuming. So a lot of small studies come out that are done much more quickly, and the data is just not as robust. So a couple of things to look for when you're kind of dissecting an abstract. And maybe we'll figure out some, some kind of graphic or something on this that we can put in the show notes. Um, you know, start by looking at how many people were involved in the study. If it was a study done on 16 people, it's not very relevant to anybody's life. Like it's a case report, it's interesting, but it's not, you know, if it's data collected on a thousand people and they were a nationally representative sample where they tried to make sure that the thousand people in the study have characteristics, you know, age, socioeconomic status, gender, race, breakdown that's representative of the United States or wherever you are, that's more of a useful population. Or, you know, if it's a study done on 50-year-old men and you're a 30-year-old woman, like, it's not going to be relevant to you particularly. So you want to look at research that was done on a population that's comparable to you or your family. Um, You also want to look at how long they were followed. So 
often this is happens all the time with weight loss studies. They'll see a big result after about six weeks of following some program, but they won't bother to follow up people at six months, 12 months, two years, five years. And you really want to know what happened at that point. You know, how long did they see this benefit or how long did whatever, you know, whatever big takeaway they're claiming about the study, did it really last? And then the other thing with um, nutrition research is often it's because it's expensive for researchers to like make food and feed people directly for two years. Um, Usually they're just having them self-report what they ate and people are not very reliable with that. So that's another one to, um, yeah, to really pay attention to. Because if it's all self-reported data, it's probably not as ironclad as if they sat in the lab for two years. On the other hand, if they sat in the lab for two years, it's not real life. So that's a drawback with that kind of research. Jenny, do you have other strategies that you would want to add here in how you evaluate? Uh, just to just to reinforce kind of what Virginia is saying, yeah, the same the same tips I would use. I think it's really the, the two that stand out to me are um, the length of time. So we often get a study about a certain nutritional ingredient or um, a certain way of feeding a child. Um, just like an example would be in my feeding therapy world. So there's ways of feeding kids, and they have a a protocol, they apply it to a small group of people, and then they examine them. They see how the kids are doing with eating, expanding their food choices for kids that have a limited amount. And they're using kind of like a behavioral approach. And this is, is the example I'm thinking of right now, where they're kind of rewarding the kids for eating it. And what the study shows and in, in this study that I'm thinking of is that the kids eat more. What the study doesn't do, just it's just good to know what's not there. And I think you pointed that out, Virginia. What it doesn't do is show what impact it has to reward kids for eating in two years, four years, five years. There is research out there about how we feed kids that has been out there for a long time that does follow kids more longitudinally over long periods of time. But so to me, the biggest one that affects most parents in the work that we do is that they're looking at short-term studies or studies that don't follow them. And then this other thing that came up in our email exchange that we were referring to, which is the correlation versus cause concept. Yes, this is really, really big. Yeah, Jenny, explain this because this is a, this is critical to understand about yeah. nutrition, all kinds of research, really. Really. And I, I think it is true of, of most everything. But we often, as consumers who are not sitting around in a research lab and analyzing data for a living, it's really easy as a consumer to, to see a study and think that one thing is linked to another. So in the example that we were talking about after the um, the last episode that we had emailed about, about the chocolate milk and drinks, there was a study that said that kids who are exposed to different flavors um, had an increased incidence of being more willing to eat flavors or having a broader diet later. And when they were exposed when they were babies. They, if they were exposed when they were flavors. really, yeah, I think it was like before 18 right. months or something. Yeah, right. they were exposed when they were babies, so lots of different flavors. It was a predictor of more choices or variety later on. And while that may be true, <laughs> it wasn't saying that that's why. It wasn't saying that the reason that the children <laughs> were eating more um, foods later in life was only the food choices that they tasted or were exposed to. So I just think it's helpful to point that out because there are lots of factors that go into it. And in that that example in particular, what's more important um, to look at is the big picture where the children, like if the children were forced to eat those foods in wide, wide variety, forced or coerced to eat them, 
my guess would be that the results of the study would be very different and mm. based on what we know about responsive feeding and lifelong healthy relationships with food. And so I just think it's super important that we not mistake something be a, being correlated or a predictor of another thing as being, you know, the black and white answer of what's causing it. Those are different. Right. Because you don't want to then just, you know, it's easy for parents to misinterpret that and think like, I have to get my baby to eat tons of different well, foods. Well, and this so is why there are, like, if you Google baby food chart, you know, there's all of these charts of like a hundred foods to give your baby before they turn oh one. God. Because if you do that, you won't have a picky eater. And it's just not true. <laughs> Uh, and then the moment your child throws one of the, the number three on the list on the floor, yeah. you're like left, you're left like questioning yourself and it's yeah. stressful. And and also then you're less likely to like offer those foods in the, foods in the future. And so given to so like to take it out of the correlation or to take it back to the, you know, the, the longitudinal aspect of things and looking at things in the long term, there actually is a lot of research, but also just information about the long view and what we know works best for kids. And what we know is what you guys talk about in, in most episodes, which is that if kids are ta taught healthy uh, messages about their own bodies, they're not being subjected to messages that are negative about their parents or others' bodies, if they are not having foods that are viewed as unhealthy, restricted completely from their diet or shamed for eating them, if they're not being pressured or forced to eat foods that are viewed as healthy by the people that are feeding them, if we and then if they're allowed, if people are reading their cues of fullness and hunger, which is not always easy, but if that happens, those things actually, there is a lot of weight behind them in their research, but also in my clinical practice, you can just see those kids become more confident, healthy eaters in the long run. And so I think, um, I, ju I just think it's great to, to keep in mind. And then if I may just go back to that just because we talked about it, the study about exposure, because yes. it's what prompted our whole conversation yes, yes. about the, the, the analogy. Um, you know, exposure is super important. It's really important that we expose our kids to different foods. But <laughs> that exposure doesn't necessarily mean what goes in their mouth. We can expose kids to a wide variety of foods while honoring their bodies, while not forcing them or having them silence any fear or discomfort or just kind of disinterest they have around a food. We can expose them to it by eating it ourselves, by having them be involved in the preparation of it, by taking them to the grocery store. There are lots of ways to expose kids in a healthful way to a variety of different foods without putting that insane pressure on ourselves yeah. that they have to eat that huge list that you saw on Instagram or, or Pinterest. And so I just like to keep reminding parents of that, that our job isn't to dictate what goes in. I think a lot of times um, that the exposure issue gets misconstrued as your child needs to taste this thing 20 times before they will like it. And that's just not, that's not the way that that works. Right. No, it's not the way kids right. work. Right. So, so, so there's an actual um, thing out there called neophobia, which you guys have talked about on here before, I believe, which is that it's a developmentally appropriate around preschool age for kids to be afraid of trying new things. So it's not that that's going to make them like it. It's that for them to feel comfortable enough to try it, it, they, they, the newness has to go mm -hmm. away and the newness doesn't go away in two offerings or five offerings and often not in 10. You know, you're, you kids need to see things consistently in different settings by different people. That doesn't mean you should be like having a, a notebook next to your <laughs> table with and checking off how many times you've offered, you know, sweet peppers or whatever. But 
it does mean that it takes a minute. It's normal that your child doesn't try things in the beginning and that when they try them, they reject them. That's a typical part of development. That is super reassuring to hear. And I think, again, framing it around like not getting too literal about how we interpret this research is really helpful. We try to coach parents to when you're just making decisions about how to feed your kids, you're not making them not making big decisions about whether you're doing it right or big shifts in how you're doing it in the moment when your kid is throwing the food on the floor. You're going to do it away from the mealtime. You're going to do it in a time when things are relatively unstressful. We call them like checking in with yourself or checking in with your partner about how the mealtimes are going. You make the decisions about what your kids eat at the grocery store and when you decide who you surround them with, what school you send them to. Those are when those de- and and then whether or not you decide to team with those people and collaborate with them in a trusting way. Um, and then when you're assessing if it's going well, a meal, it hasn't to do much with what goes in their mouth. It has more to do with the internal drives to eat. Mm-hmm. It has more to do with, and the internal drives to eat are, are not just hunger. Hunger is a big one, but togetherness is an internal drive to eat. Curiosity is an internal drive to eat. Novelty isn't a natural internal reason that kids want to eat and comfort, which, you know, here we are talking about comfort food, but those are the, those are the natural drives in childhood for learning to eat. So if you step back and try to keep those at the forefront of your mind when your child is eating and try to leave in, in the, you know, meal or at the party or wherever it is where you're feeling conflicted about what choice to make, try to just think about those. And if you've got one of them, <laughs> things are going okay. If your child's enjoying time together around food with a peer, then one of the internal drives to eat is being met. And that's important and valuable. Even if it's just comfort, there's a time and a place for that. Those are really important things. And we've talked about that before. Um, and it's also okay occasionally <laughs> if those things aren't present, because we all know that that does happen occasionally and we have to give ourselves a break. It doesn't mean that if you mess up or if a situation comes up and there's a you know, a a surprise or whatever. Somebody said something unfortunate at a birthday party to your child about their food choice. That doesn't unravel everything else you've done. Right. It doesn't erase it. It it, The message is about what you're sending on the, on the whole, you know, it's a, it's a more of a umbrella message that you're sending that matters, that stays with the kids versus those tiny little individual episodes. That is a really helpful perspective. I love that. And it can for sure be hard to do that in the moment. But I think the more that you practice this, sort of the easier that it gets. Yeah. And I've had people, I mean, everybody's different in terms of the way that they, um, you know, need to be reminded about things or the way that they learn or help themselves through tasks that are difficult. And I've had parents write down the internal drives to eat and keep them on the refrigerator or keep them, have a list of them on their phone. Well, that's a great tip. I guess we're going to be making a little printable for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you have one that that you want us to share. I don't make it. It sounds great. I want one. So I, no, I think, um, I think that that is one strategy that people use. I think another one that people have used is just, you know, looking at your child and how they're doing in other areas. You know, health is about more than food. Health is about the whole child and if they're happy and, and, and participating in school and if they're, you know, affectionate and emotionally doing okay. And, you know, if they're able to, themselves and they're meeting milestones and they're progressing 
then then we're in a good spot. You know, yeah. we don't have to have it be all about the food all the time. And and we use this example. I'm a developmentalist by training, and so I look at development as we. I don't even know where in grad school I learned this, but in childhood, we don't expect kids or adults for that matter to perform at their best 100% of the time. We expect it roughly mastery we consider when we look at developmental milestones is 80% of the time. 20% of the time, it is not going to be happening. And so a decent meal, not their best meal, is going to happen 80% of the time. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy, but if you take your and that doesn't mean what your kid is eating. It means these other it comp- these other you know, right, like how well the overall meal experience goes. Yeah, yeah, based on these internal drives to eat, which includes mm-hmm. togetherness. Eighty percent of the time, if you're there, you're doing it because that's human nature. That's the nature of learning to develop and figuring things out. Nobody's at a hundred percent, and there's a lot of pressure at a hundred percent. If you're if we're expecting ourselves and our kids to do their best and to be in the moment, and we're as parents incorporating all of this information that we're being bombarded with, not just about food, but about, you know, how to plan a birthday party and how to be the best parents and to juggling our work and and our our, um, home lives. There's no way that we can do it at our best 80% of the time. And we also, or 100% of the time, we also are then setting our kids up with unrealistic expectations of themselves. Definitely. And they need to be able to go out into a world where there is non-responsive messages being sent all the time around food. Mm-hmm. If we if we create a world for them around food where they only are experiencing, you know, the messages that we really want them to experience, those responsive messages, as I call them, then what's going to happen when they, you know, they need to learn how to contend with the non-responsive things too. And that's why we're here to help them do that as parents. That's so interesting. This is, okay, this is a little off topic, but I want to ask another developmental question that just occurred to me, um, which is, do you find that this sort of, you know, 80%, do you find that the percentages change when kids are struggling with something else? And the reason I'm asking is, you know, I talked about last week's podcast episode. I talked about, you know, my both my girls, kind of their list of safe foods had gotten a little shorter recently. And, you know, Beatrix just turned two, so neophobia um, arriving. And then with my older daughter, I think when she's going through different periods of stress in her life, this is uh, this is the area where we often see, you know, she'll get a lot more particular about food. She'll get much less adventurous again. And, I think I, I'm wondering if that's something that people might commonly see and you might zero in on feeling like food is the problem, but is it helpful to sort of look more broadly at like, oh, well, they're just learning to read or they're mastering potty training or, you know, something else is going on that's maybe causing meals to sort of plateau a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100. Yes, it does make sense. And absolutely. Yeah. These are more like, you know, umbrella like averages for the big picture of how our years are, our months and our years are going. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're not doing it's very common in, in literature that, that shows, although we have to, again, be careful about these studies, but but what we know is that like when a child learns to walk, sometimes they talk a little bit less, you know, mm-hmm. it's or vice versa. You know, the, we have an, we have a finite amount of, you know, energy and ability right, to bandwidth. focus on certain things. <laughs> yeah. Right, bandwidth, exactly. And so, of course, it makes sense that if you're going through a challenge in one area, you're going to you know, perhaps hunker down at a, in a different level than you might have the week before in another area of development. So yes, that's absolutely true with food too. It's true across areas of development. So another reason not to get so hung up on the nutrition piece when, you know, if you take a more holistic look at your kid and think about what's, you know, 
why broccoli yeah. is less interesting this week. It might not I, have anything to do with the broccoli. <laughs> exactly. It probably doesn't. And and the that 80, I hesitate often with families to ever talk about numbers, honestly, because so much of the most important pre, pre, um, predictors of how well kids are going to do with food feeding challenges, but then how well they're going to relate to food later has to do with qualitative stuff. And if we focus on anything with a number, it takes us away. Right. People are like suddenly calculating. Yeah. So yeah. just a real, like, just to say again, like, you know, the, as long as you're changing your, the, the, the framework that you're assessing things on, again, is your child thriving? Are they growing? Are they meeting milestones? Are they, you know, relatively happy? Though? <laughs> Everybody has happy moments all the time. Um, you know, then, and then are you looking at those internal drives to eat the togetherness, curiosity, hunger, novelty, and comfort? You know, if those things are there 80% of the time, you're good. And I think we're hard on ourselves. I think mm-hmm. they are most of the time. I think the, I think some of those components are present in almost most of the meals. I think you're there. Most people that are listening are probably already there. It's just because we have all of this other information, we get lost. We get distracted from what's the most important and what is truly the best predictor of a child feeling safe and comfortable around food and now and then later which is, which is these more qualitative. And just sort of on that note, I did want to just remind everyone that when you're seeing headlines from news organizations or websites, like I put myself in this list, um, all of these sites are making money from people being on their site. And so they have a very real reason to make you want to click on that link. And the headline may be completely misleading and it may be completely taking whatever the study was out of context. So just like take a minute to realize that someone is like trying to make a dollar. Like, you know, it's. And don't email the author of the article and yell at her because we don't get to write our headlines, (laughs) but that's a separate issue. It's not my fault when the headlines are bad. (laughs) (laughs) The editors do that to us. Anyway. Jenny, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. This was super, super helpful. Um, will you tell our listeners? It was. It was. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, tell our listeners where we can find more of you. Oh, sure, sure. We can be found at thrivewithspectrum.com, at thrivewithspectrum.com. And we can be found on um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So, We'd love to hear from people. And we'll have all of those links in the show notes. And if anyone has follow-up questions for this or wants more information on anything we talked about, um, you can either send us a message or comment on our show notes at comfortfoodpodcast.com. All right. Now coming up, I have some breaking news on the Beatrix bottle front. So (laughs) stay tuned. So, Virginia, the other day you had posted something on somewhere, I can't remember where, about um, you put Beatrix to bed without a bottle. It finally happened, you guys. I know. So We've big. been talking about this um, Forever. on the spring, I think. Yes. Episode 37, it was the end of season two, was when we went like deep dive into milk weaning. And that is like our most popular episode ever. So I have a feeling I'm speaking to a lot of you right now because people really like to talk about milk weaning. Um, we talked about both breastfeeding, weaning, and bottle weaning. And this was like, this was a journey for me because, you know, I've talked about 
the traumatic feeding experiences with my older daughter and how cathartic it was to be able to first breastfeed Beatrix successfully and then, you know, make the decision around four or five months that I was ready to just go over to formula and really embrace that. And I just derived so much joy out of feeding her. I mean, that's not breaking news to anyone who listens to this podcast. Feeding babies <laughs> is great. Um, when it works well, it's really wonderful. And so, you know, I was... I am not someone who is super sentimental about losing the baby stage. Like my husband and I basically throw a party on every birthday of like, oh my God, our lives are finally getting easier. Like I don't miss, I don't ever want another newborn um, in my life. But um, I mean, I like other people's, but I don't want to have one. But the bottle was the one thing that I was like um, (laughs) sentimental about, you know, this was a big stage. So I think a lot of this was me needing to be ready as much as her needing to be ready. Um, but she's also a kid who loves her bottles, Lo- loved her bottles. So, yeah. So what we did um, last spring, we so around the, I think it was like her 18-month checkup, our pediatrician was like, yeah, you got to get started on this. Um, you know, there's no medical or physiological need for her to have a bottle. We had switched when she turned one. We'd switched over to regular milk from formula. Um, and she was still around 18 months. She was still in like five bottles a day. And it was like... <laughs> How are we going to do this? Um, And so I talked in those episodes. You can go back to episode 37 and hear how we dropped down to just having um, like a four to six ounce bottle before nap and before bedtime. And we were able to pretty seamlessly drop the daytime, like the sort of in-between daytime bottles. Um, But then we just... We just stayed there for a while. We were like, it's fine. We're going to we're gonna just hang out with these bottles because they were a part of her bedtime routine and they were really comforting. And we were all just like, both me, Dan, and our babysitter were all like, oh, this is not going to go well. Um, <laughs> so then when we had her two-year checkup, the pediatrician was like, aren't you done? <laughs> Which, you know, pediatricians like pick off a little bit. Um, I feel like they just think it's this really easy thing and they forget, you know, I mean, you know, Amy, how emotional this is. Yeah. That it's not just like, I want to just put it away and be done with it. Um, My pediatrician asked me at our nine month checkup if um, meals had been replacing um, nursing sessions. And I was like, <laughs> no, nope. he's like, what? No, nope. he's a baby. That, yeah, no. And I was like, it's how long has it been since you've had a baby? Because I feel like that's really out of touch. It's really out of touch. That's really weird. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. That's, yeah, um, it's weird. So anyway, uh, we kind of hemmed and hawed about it. And so we have taken this very gradual approach. And I don't know, maybe if we had just put all the bottles away at 18 months, it would have been fine. That is entirely possible. I think that works great for a lot of kids. So when I'm talking about what we did, guys, I'm not saying anyone needs to do it the way we did. But if you are feeling ambivalent about this or have a lot of emotions to process, you know, I think a gradual approach can be helpful because it gives everybody time to get there. And so after her two-year checkup, we decided, okay, we're going to take the bedtime, the you know, pre-nap, pre-bedtime bottle, which at that point was four ounces, and we're going to take it down to two ounces, which sounds really silly, but I'm really glad we did it because it gave her a few days of, she was mad about it. Like she would finish it and she would be like, let's go back downstairs. I need more bottles. I need, I, there's not much milk here, mommy. <laughs> like, she was very like, straightforward. About, like, uh, you didn't put enough in. And so, you know, and she would then, I would say, nope, that's all we're having today. And she would throw the bottle and be mad about it. Um, and it just let her kind of let out some of the feelings about it. And over, we did that for a full week and like Sunday and Monday of that week, she was furious. And it was like, 
a thing. And by Wednesday, she was like, sort of like, ah, fine. <laughs> and by Friday, she was barely finishing the two ounces. Like, it just gave her that time, I think, to kind of work through it and accept the change in routine. And, you know, she all, everything else about her bedtime routine. The other thing I did, um, not deliberately, but looking back, I think was helpful, was um, we kept everything else very consistent, down to the books that she wanted to read. I think we all read Curious George and the Dump Truck 900 times that week. Like we just kept <laughs> reading the one book that she was most sort of reassured and comforted and loves that book over and over and over. So that I think that helped reinforce like not that much is changing. You know, you're still getting your snuggles. You're still getting all the, you know, cozy bedtime reading and everything. Just a little less milk in the bottle. That's it. And then um, Sunday night, um, so we, we never want to mess with weekend naps cause you know, obviously. Um, and so we, you know, we kept it over the weekend, the two ounces, the two ounces. So she would still nap and we would have our break. But then Sunday night bedtime, I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and, uh, she, we went upstairs and I had this like last minute thought where I was like, oh, what if maybe a toothbrush, let's brush her teeth, which we are kind of hit a mess on at bedtime. And we went and got her toothbrush, which she was super excited about. And then she brushed her teeth the whole time I read the story. And she didn't even ask about the bottle at all. It did not come up. She was totally happy. Wow. Had so that been was insane. Her a bottle before nap time? Yeah, we had had both. Well, but okay. that's what I'm saying. Over last weekend, we didn't drop the nap time bottle. So that bedtime was the first time because I didn't want to mess with my nap time. So I didn't want to lose that two hours of, you know, unconscious right. toddler. Um, <laughs> I didn't want her to not nap. So I waited until the bedtime to do it. And she still didn't even really reference it. Now, the next day, Monday, she did remember. When our babysitter took her up to nap, she remembered about the bottle and she asked for it. And same when Dan put her to bed that night. Um and there was maybe both times five minutes of feelings. And then she was happy to sit with the toothbrush, brush her teeth while being read a story. And last night when I put her to bed, it was like on the way up the stairs. She was like, no more bottle. And I was like, that's right. And she <laughs> sort of like cries. She does this thing where she puts her head down and she goes, it's gone forever. Oh, She'll say this about anything, though. She said this about her baby gate. The baby gate is gone forever. You know? <laughs> She'll finish her Cheerios. It's gone forever. So it's like just her way of acknowledging. <laughs> um, and then I was like, yep, yeah, you're a big girl now. You know, isn't that exciting? Let's go get your toothbrush. And she was fine. That's so sweet. You had yeah. also mentioned something about saying goodnight to all the... In oh, yeah. That was the other thing. Um, she has actually been building that herself. Like She has suddenly... And I think it's a bedtime stalling. I mean, it's definitely a bedtime stalling tactic. You know, we'll get halfway up the stairs and she'll go, I need to say goodnight to the playroom. <laughs> And so we'll go back downstairs and she'll go, good night, playroom, good night, trampoline, good night, sofa, good night, pillow, you know, and she'll just like pick random things. She needs to say good night, spoon. Um, and so we did that as well. Yeah, as part of the, it was like that and the toothbrush combination um, seemed to just give her like the touch points she needed that here she has other ways to self-soothe. That was just one option. You know, like, I don't feel like this is in any way undermined her sense of security with anything so that was my goal love it and so yeah I think the takeaway is just like there's no right way to do this it's going to be different for everyone um but I don't think I think there's maybe um I don't know if it's a misconception or what but there's this kind of myth out there that like you have to rip it away and it's going to be brutal for two weeks and then it'll be fine and 
I don't know that it has to go that way. I think you can find a gentler approach and that can be good too. Yeah. And there's no timeline that works exactly the same right. for everybody. And honestly, if I felt like she was still really clinging to it, I would have waited a little longer even. I was not like, okay, just because the pediatrician said she turned two, we need to do this. But it was because we could kind of generally tell her fixation was lessening. She was more interested in the stories than she was the bottle. You know, her whole bedtime energy had kind of changed. Like, she wasn't, she now often, you know, she's like running over to pick the book. She's then like getting distracted with a toy. She's wanting less to be sort of like held like a little baby and more, you know, she's kind of just transitioning into more of being a toddler. So it felt like the right time. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's a big it's milestone. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited. It's good stuff. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. Just $5 a month or $50 for the year, you get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thank you for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.